following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. What exactly are we going to do today? Well, in case you're visiting, or in case you're simply just newer to Cornerstone and you don't really know what's going on in the life, you've heard it uh, of uh, a couple times here this morning, uh, we're on the, the cusp of a major change to our ministry here in, in just a couple of weeks. On Sunday, September 11th, we will be moving from one 10 a.m. Sunday morning service to two Sunday morning services, one at 9 and one at 11. And this is clearly a huge change for us, a huge change for us, if you like Donald Trump, and one we've been talking about for months now. In some ways, we've been talking about it for years. And we're not doing this you know, because we're bursting at the seams, though all of you standing in the back this morning might beg to differ with me, but we're not doing it for that reason, uh, just so we can fit more people in and try to keep growing. That's not our purpose at all, nor are we doing it to try to make ourselves more convenient to different types of people, you know, so the early birds can come in at nine and those who like to rise a little later can come in at 11. We've said this over and over again. No, we're doing this very purposefully, very intentionally as a strategic step towards planting another church somewhere here in the Hampton Roads area. We don't know where yet so that we can complete the larger goal of presenting everyone that God gives us perfect in Christ Jesus. That's the goal. And I do not want you to forget this. It's very easy for us, especially right now at this very moment in Cornerstone's history, it is very easy for us to think that the goal is to get to two services. And yes, we have focused a lot on that, and a lot of work has been done behind the scenes, and you've done a lot of things in your community groups, but please do not understand, two, or please understand, two services is not the goal. It is not the end. It is a means to an end. You say, well, then is the end church planting? That's what we want to do, right? That's why we're going into two services. We can plant a church. Well, you're right in saying we want to plant a church, and you're right in saying we want to use the two-service format as a springboard into that, but understand this as well. Planting a church is in and of itself not the goal. It's not the end. You say, well, what then is the end? What then is the goal? The goal is to present everyone we come in contact with perfect in Christ Jesus. That's the end. Everything else up to that point is simply means. We can do that through two services. We can do that through church planting. We could do that through a number of ways. So these are just means to an end. The main end, the real end, the real goal for us is to present everyone we can perfect in Christ Jesus. That's, that's why we're doing all of this. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to take, this is weird saying this, these final two Sundays together. I mean, look around the room. <laughs> these final two Sundays together, to prepare ourselves, to try to prepare our hearts, to prepare our expectations for what lies ahead. And so I'm going to use both today and next Sunday as sort of an extended family talk. You remember, remember family talks, those of you who are old-timers here at Cornerstones? I haven't done one of these in a while, and I don't think I've ever done one that's gone over one Sunday, but this is a special circumstance, and so I'm going to use it in a special way. I'm going to do this week and next week a sort of a family talk. If you don't know what that is, a family talk is what I call a sermon 
where my purpose, my goal, is not to walk us through a passage of Scripture verse by verse like we would normally do and like we will start doing on the 11th as we begin our study of the book of Galatians. My purpose is to, in a very pastoral way, um, almost like a father talking to his children, to just address an issue, a situation, something that is pressing on us as a church family, as a, as a people here at this given moment. And so we've done these from time to time as, thing, as things have come up, trying to just address, so address stuff so we can think biblically about the issue or about the situation as a whole. So in that sense, it's a little different than a normal sermon. It's a little more personal. It's a little more specifically targeted at an issue or situation that's affecting us as a church family and it's something that I want to address. That's how I distinguish a family talk from just a regular Sunday morning sermon. Well, I want to talk with us about this coming change. I want to prepare us for it. I want to prepare our hearts, and I want to do it in two specific ways. Today, I want to challenge us to count the cost of what it is we're about to do. You say, isn't it a little late for that? Maybe. But no, I just want to challenge us. I just want to, for you to remember what it's going to cost us, because this isn't coming free to us, and you'll see that in a few moments. I want us to remember the cost and to count it carefully. And then next week, I want to encourage us by reminding us of the providential goodness of God that has guided us in all our ways from the day we first were planted until now. So that's very specific to us here at Cornerstone. Okay? I just want to remind us of the providential goodness of God that we have seen over these past almost 15 years. And between these two family talks, my prayer for us is that God will unite our hearts in, in what our purpose is and why we're doing all this, that he will unite our resolve, our commitment to these things, and that he will lead us and guide us and use us in whatever ways he sees fit. So today, let's begin by counting the cost. And this passage here in Luke 14 is perfect for that. I want to take a few minutes here at the beginning just to walk through the passage quickly so that you can get a sense of what Jesus is saying here. If you look in verse 25, Luke gives us a very brief context of what's going on. Jesus, prior to this, had been, or the scene in Luke 14 is Jesus in the home of a Pharisee for a meal on the Sabbath. He heals a man, and there's some teaching. And then in verse 25, he's left, and he's going somewhere. And as you can see, as he's out and about going wherever he's going, uh, great crowds are with him. Now, all of you who are Mark alumni, you know the answer to this question, right? True or false? Crowds are normally good for Jesus. True or false? False, okay? Normally, when Jesus interacts with crowds, they are at best neutral. And by neutral, I mean they neither help nor hurt him in a given scenario. But more often than not, they're actually negative for Jesus. In some way, shape, or form, they're against him, whether they're actively against him, uh, trying to stone him, calling for his arrest, crying out, crucify him, or they're passively against him, meaning they're just getting in the way. They act as a hindrance to whatever it is that Jesus is trying to do in a particular scene. And so contrary to any leader, any pastor, any politician that you would find today, Jesus doesn't seem overly encouraged by the crowds that are drawn to him. In fact, I think he sees it as a problem. And I'll just keep my comments or my own little uh, two cents here focused on the church realm, because that's the realm I know best, the realm of pastors and churches. I think you would be 
hard-pressed to find many churches or many pastors out there that if they found this Sunday morning an influx of people coming into their, their service, they would be like, this is a real problem. I mean, we have got to get rid of these people. We've got to find a way to drive them out now. Somebody go and insult them, you know? <laughs> You, you just wouldn't find that. And we wouldn't do that either, would we? I mean, if people were coming in here, great crowds, what would our response be? We'd be like, wow, this is really encouraging. This is awesome. Look at what God is doing. We, we would instantly credit God with that. Um, that's how we would respond. And so Jesus's response is almost puzzling to us because he doesn't seem to have such an excited, positive attitude about the crowds. Because rather than trying to keep them, he turns to them here and he says things to them that seem designed to push them away. In verse 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, that, <laughs> that's convicting just in and of itself. How, how do you think that went over with the crowds? I mean, just put yourself in that scenario, but let's change the scene from Jesus saying it to it being about Sam's Club, right? You're, you find yourself in need of a five-pound can of tuna for the biggest tuna casserole that's ever been made in this world, and you need to join Sam's Club to go get it. So you walk up to the customer service desk, and you say, what must I do to become a member of Sam's Club? And the worker looks at you and says, uh, if you would like to become a member of the Club of Sam, then two things must thou do. Number one... You must pay an annual $45 membership fee for the basic membership or $100 for plus. Or, and number two, excuse me, not or. And number two, you must hate your entire family, even your own life, if you'd like to be a member of Sam's Club. So what's your response at that moment if that's what the worker says? Costco, right. <laughs> exactly. You're like, where's Costco? Where's BJ's? I'm out of here. Because that's a, that's a really demanding level of membership, is it not? And here's Jesus saying, you want to be my disciple? You're, oh, crowds, oh, they all want to follow me. This is great. Everybody wants to be a part of Jesus' team. And Jesus is like, no, you want to follow me? You got to hate your family. You got to hate your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that probably people began to disperse after that. Next, he's not done. Next, he says, verse 27 Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And I'll remind you of things I've said before here, that, that saying this to them would be uh, the same as saying to you today, unless you sit down in your own electric chair, you cannot be my disciple. Unless the necktie you wear to work tomorrow is a noose, you cannot be my disciple. See, we tend to think of the cross as a symbol because for us it is. But in their day, it is not a symbol. It is a means of execution. It is a brutal, horrific tool. We saw this in Mark, just remember, just a few months ago, remember? It's a brutal, horrific tool of torture and death that the Romans employed with stunning skill. So you say this to the crowds in Jesus' day, hey, you want to follow me? Go find a cross and bring it along. <laughs> this, is, this is baffling. What? What do you mean, pick up a cross? I, no, again, this is, this is not the way to win friends and influence people. Uh, he's not trying to keep them. He moves on now to a couple of illustrations. Verse 28, for which of you then, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? 
Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, based on those illustrations, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Wait, what? I mean, what's Jesus saying here? Well, in, in both illustrations, the man building the tower, the king going to war, the idea is that before either of these actions occur, it is the responsibility of the person making the decision to sit down and consider whether or not they're really able to do it. Are they really able to commit to this? Are they really able to see this thing through to the very end? I mean, can you really build this tower? Do you have enough money, enough time, enough materials, enough help, enough commitment, enough dis uh, discipline? Are you really able to see that tower through to the very end? Or you're a king, you've got to make a decision about war. He's got 20,000, I've got 10. Are my guys ninjas? Are they got special weapons? I mean, what can I do? Could I even win this war? Is that something that's even possible for me? Can I see this thing through to the very end? And if I can't, I better make other plans. In both illustrations, there is a cost involved. And the question before you is, are you really willing and able to pay it? That's what the two illustrations have in common. Well, now back to the crowds. Jesus now gives them a third condition or a third cost of discipleship here. He says, any of you who does not renounce all that he has, walks away from all his worldly goods, all his possessions, he cannot be my disciple. And again, I wish I, wish I could see the crowd's response at this point. My guess is that by the time he's done, there, there may not be as great of crowds following him anymore. I kind of picture it almost like Gideon, you know. Gideon starts off, John and I were teaching this to the kids last Sunday. Um, well, John mainly, and I was just crowd control. But regardless, uh, you know, Gideon starts off with this big army to go fight the Midianites. And God's like, no, nah, it's too many. And he takes away, you know, if you're scared, go home. <laughs> Most of them go home. And he's like, okay, if you lap water like a dog, you can, you know, he whittles it down. There's only 300 left. Huge amount of people. 300 when he's done. Here's Jesus got great crowds. And he's probably like, okay, if you don't hate your family and your own life, you can't be my disciple. And there's like, bye. And then the next one, yeah, if you uh, don't pick up a cross, follow me. You can't be my disciple. There goes more. If you don't renounce everything you own, you can't be my disciple. He's probably just left with the 12 again. That's it. He's back down to where he started when the scene began. Now, obviously, we could spend a great deal of time working through each of these three conditions or these three costs in a lot more detail. And doing so would be super helpful, uh, convicting, etc. That's just not my focus today because of what I said to you at the beginning. I, I just want to summarize the big picture point that Jesus is making in this section for you, and it's this, that following him will cost you. Following Jesus comes at a price. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's a serious commitment. As I've said many other times, rooting for Team Jesus is not like rooting for a football team where you put on his jersey and you wave his banner and it doesn't cost you anything. 
If you're in with Jesus, it's going to cost you something. Or if I could say it in a little different way to try to make it a little more picturesque for you, Jesus did not come to build a peacetime resort. Do you understand that? You see, in a peacetime resort, I get to go and just relax and have fun and have all my needs met and sit back on the beach and, you know, whatever's fun and easy for me, it's, that's what it's all about. And there's a lot of people in this world, maybe some of you in this room, I don't know, who view the church that Jesus is building as nothing more than that, as a peacetime resort where your needs can be met. And if they're not met here, there's another resort just down the road. You can go there instead. Jesus didn't come to build a peacetime resort. You know what he came to build? A wartime outpost of the kingdom. You want to understand the church in a little bit more picturesque kind of way for the purposes of our time this morning? Think of it that way, as a wartime outpost of the kingdom. Except what's different about the kingdom Jesus is building and the kingdoms of this world is, you know, the, the kingdoms of this world use weapons of guns and bombs, etc. Jesus' weapons are the gospel and the spirit of God, and love, and joy, and hope, and goodness. So the weapons of the warfare are very different than the weapons this world uses, but the, the cost, the demands on us are actually quite similar, because Jesus demands that we would love him more than we love ourselves or our families. He demands that we be willing to lay down our lives for him. He demands that we be willing to give up everything him. And as American Christians, we've just not had to do that yet. I'm not convinced it's not going to come at some point, but just yet we haven't had to, which is why American Christians are, and if this offends you good, we're so lazy and so selfish. We are. You, you compare us to Christians pretty much anywhere else around the world, and we are a bunch of whiny babies. Uh, uh, Jordan earlier mentioned the, um, well, it wasn't during the service, sorry, it was during practice. There's this uh, website that we've come to love. It's called the Babylon Bee. Do not look at it now. Um, it's a satirical Christian news site. So if you ever have heard of The Onion, it's like that, but all Christian, okay? So they have these articles which are funny, but a lot of times they're really pointed as well. I mean, really pointed and really convicting. And one of them they had a, a, a few months ago, it was a picture, that, the headline was a picture of like a Middle Eastern man, and it said, persecuted church member, uh, persecuted church members' needs not met, decides to visit church across minefield. <laughs> Think about that. Now, it's funny. You're, you're right to laugh. But if you're in a persecuted church setting, you're in Syria, you're in Iraq, you're in Iran, you're not making decisions on what church you're a part of because of the music style. You're not going to cross the minefield to go visit the church across town to see if perhaps that's a better fit for your family, Right? The, the, the kinds of things we do in, Amer in the American church, they make no sense in the rest of the world, much of the rest of the world. We, we're lazy, we're selfish. And so this is why when you ask um, people to, to serve in children's ministries, you might as well ask them to sit in their electric chair. It's like, I might choose that instead. <laughs> you, you ask them to give sacrificially, and they're like, are you asking me to hate my family? What? No, I'm not. M many people simply don't want to pay the cost. Well, if I may, this morning, for the purposes, again, of what we're doing today, Matt, can I remind us that, that moving forward here at Cornerstone and what we're trying to do and what our long-term, big-picture goals are, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. And I, I just, 
I try to come up with categories because it helps me to think in categories. I came up with four categories for us that I think is, these are the four things that's going to cost us at least. Number one is going to cost us comfort. It's going to cost us comfort because we don't like change. No one, no one in this room likes change. That's not a Christian problem. That's not a cornerstone problem. That's a human problem, right? It's just naturally part of human nature. We don't like change. And parents, you get this better than anyone. If you've ever potty trained a child, I think this is the best illustration in the world. They'd rather stay in the poop they know than sit on the pot they don't. (laughs) Right? You know I'm right. Because they're like, oh, this is wonderful. It's warm and cozy. and, And you're like, no, that's better. But they don't see that at that age, do they? And while hopefully they grow out of that specific example, do they ever grow out of that human trait of resisting what they already know and are comfortable with? Have you? I haven't. You give me the opportunity to avoid change, and I will avoid it at every turn. I will stay with what I know, and I will stay with what is comfortable because I like it. And you call me to something new, or you call me to something different, and I'm scared of it. And so here we are on the cusp of a major change. And I'll be honest with you, I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm not sure I want to do it. I've sat here a few times in my office going, what are we doing? Oh my goodness, is it too late to back out of this? But we can't just say no to change because it scares us or because it's hard. We have to embrace it, but that's going to make us uncomfortable. It's going to rob you of some comfort that you have right now where you can show up on a Sunday morning and everything is like it's always been. It's going to rob us of that. And it's going to show itself in all kinds of ways. You know, one of the ones, just as a specific example, that I'm actually, if I say it, now it's going to become like a bigger thing, is like sitting up here this morning. We're we're singing, right? And oftentimes I find myself, I just stop singing and just listen to you. Because that is an encouragement to my heart to hear all these voices singing in this room. Half of these voices are going to be gone in two weeks, right? I'll get to hear them twice, but they won't be the same as hearing them all together. And that's going to, I'm going to miss that. It's going to be weird preaching to half a room. You know, I look out here and the room's full, right? And now the room's going to be half empty and it's going to be weird. I'm going to miss that. But, but we have to be willing to give up some things that we find comfortable in order to meet the larger goal, the larger purpose. Number two, it's going to cost us convenience. Convenience. Look, if you've been sitting back doing nothing, you got to jump in because we got more needs now. We're doubling everything. And and Jordan and and other, they've worked so hard at trying to streamline this and make this thing work. And it is, but but it's going to require more service from us. It's going to bring up little inconveniences that we're not used to, right? We're going to take some of, some of you parents are going to address this in two weeks because your fifth graders who are back there now are going to sit in here and on the way home, they're going to be like, I don't like that. I want to go back to children's church. And you'll say, I do too. Yeah, I understand. (laughs) But you've got to stay. You've got to stay in there and listen. You know, it's going to be a transition for some of your families in here to have to now keep some kids in. And, and you know, we would love to see more families try to, to grow their kids by bringing them into the service when they can, when it's appropriate for their, their children. But that's going to make the rest of us a little, you know, it's going to inconvenience us because kids are going to make noises. It's going to be loud. We're going to suffer the little children. And sometimes you really suffer children. And, you know, it's just, it's just going to cost us some things. Things aren't going to be exactly as they were. Number three, it's going to cost us relationships. And this has been the one that I've heard the most from people that they're dreading. You know, I'm not going to see everybody on Sunday. I love seeing everybody. It's my favorite thing. But you realize something, just as a quick aside here. 
if you were to go back, if we could like have a secret video camera that followed you around on a Sunday morning and watched you, you'd probably learn that you talk to the same five to six people every Sunday no matter what. Shame on you. Shame on me. So hopefully what this does when you're taking a little bit out of your comfort zone in the area of people is it'll force you to say hi to some folks maybe you don't know or don't know as well, which you should be doing now. You should do at the end of this service, find someone you don't know and say hi to them, okay? Um, you're going to lose some of that. It's not that you're losing the relationship as a whole. You'll just lose that interaction on Sunday morning, but I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. It's uh, a little unusual for me to ask something like this of you, so I hope you will take it very seriously. I'm not asking it flippantly. I'm asking it very purposely. There will be seven Sundays from September 11th until we get to our fall picnic, which I think is the 31st or 30th of October, right, Jordan? Okay, seven Sundays, three in September, four in, in October. Here's what I want you to do to help with this a little bit. If you come to the early service, be here on time at nine o'clock. Do not plan to get right to your car at the end of the service. Plan on staying out in that hallway as long as you can to say hi to the people coming into the second service. Now, no one's going to police you on this. No one's going to check. And we're not taking attendance, but you know, some of you are like, you're like, you could beat Usain Bolt out to the car, right? I mean, he, he, you're gone. <laughs> and I'm asking you just not to do that. Just don't do that. Go out in the hallway, stand there, and say hi to someone. It's that, that simple. But, and then if you're second service people, I'm about to leave you out, forgetting how this works. Don't just show up at 11. Show up as early as you can so you can see some of the people from the first service. Seven weeks is what I'm asking you to do. Just so we have that time to bond in between, to see one another in between as we're beginning this. And we'll get used to it in time. And after a while, you might even find you like showing up early and meeting some new folks or staying a little late and meeting some new folks. We want to do this. We want to not lose the relationships, but it is going to cost us some things we like. And then number four, it's going to cost us resources. It already has. I don't know how many hours, particularly Jordan has put in on this. You all should like write him thank you notes. I mean it, seriously, you should, for what's about to happen on September 11th. All of that has come with hours and hours and hours of work behind it. It's going to cost us money and time as we're trying to plan a church. We're going to have to be willing to sacrifice these things to make our larger goal happen. And I promise you something, I promise you, not everyone's going to like it. If I've learned one thing in these past nine years here at Cornerstone, is that whatever change you make, it doesn't matter what it is, which direction you change in, whatever change you make, you make somebody mad. You do. And not everyone's going to stick around for it. You say, I guess kind of cynical. I'm not being cynical. I'm not even being pessimistic. I'm just speaking from experience. Don't be shocked if somebody leaves. I don't want that to happen, but I just won't, <laughs> I just won't be shocked when it does. But that's okay. God has always used those moments to actually make us stronger. He's always used those moments to help bind together the people who were really on board with the same vision and moving forward. And so it could be discouraging. Don't let it be. Not only that, but there's no guarantee of quick or visible results. Don't forget that. This is not like, you know, two weeks in, we're going to be like, we're really glad we made that decision. You know, we could be three months in, six months in, nine months in, and looking around going, uh, what's happening here? Why did we do this? There's no guarantee of results. 
Our result is to make people, our goal is to make people perfect in Jesus. That's the only result we care about. Everything else that happens, we can kind of hold very loosely. Hopefully that occurs no matter what, but if you're looking around for visible results, you might be scratching your head for a little bit. I don't know what's going to happen. I have no idea. And so, you know, what do we do if that happens? What do we do if people leave? Let me, let me answer that question with a modified version of a parable that I told a group of guys recently. I heard it from somewhere else. It goes something like this. There was a, a village somewhere in a far country away from here filled with very average normal people. And they went about their normal, average daily lives every day, in and out, morning to night, just like normal, until one morning they woke up, and when they all came out of their houses, in the field behind the village was a massive rock that had fallen from heaven in the night. Nobody had heard it, nobody saw it, but there it was, bigger than the village itself, huge, huge stone. And they're all standing around looking at this thing going, what are we supposed to do with this? We didn't ask for this. What what are we going to do with this? And the Lord speaks to them and says, okay, here's what you're going to do. Every morning, I want every man and woman in this village to come out and I want you to push against the rock. Okay? Push all day. Push through whatever weather comes. You push all the way until it's time to go to bed. When it's time to go to bed, you can go inside, go to sleep. Next morning, get up, come out, and push again. So the people obeyed. Yes, Lord. Next morning, they all come out every man and woman in the the village, and they all lean against the rock, and they push. All day long, they push. Evening comes, they go to bed. Next day comes, they come out. Everybody starts pushing, but some people are like, why are we doing this? And they begin to to leave, but everybody else, God told us to do it. Push against the rock, so they push all day, all night, time to go to bed, they go to bed. Days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years through every type of weather, rain, snow, sleet, sun, heat, cold. It didn't matter. They got out there and they pushed all day against the rock until one day the tempter shows up and he says to them, why are you pushing against this rock? Well, God told us to push against the rock. Oh, has the rock moved? No. (laughs) Have you even rocked it? Has it even budged? No. And why are you? Couldn't you be doing a million other things? Just go sit down, go rest. You, you've pushed long enough. Take a break. And the people listen. They think about it, and they're like, "He's right. It's never moved." And so they go into the village square, and they all sit down. All every man and woman down in the grass. Well, the Lord speaks to them again and says, "What are you doing?" And they're like, "We're taking a break." Why didn't I tell you to push against the rock? Well, yeah, but the rock's never moved. We've been pushing for years now. The rock has never moved. We've not accomplished a single thing. Nothing has happened. And the Lord said, first, I never told you to move the rock. I never asked you to move it. When the time comes to move it, I'll move it. I only asked you to push against it. I asked you to be faithful to do one thing and one thing only, and that was to push it. I'd move it when the time comes. And second, you say you've been pushing against it for years and nothing has happened, but did you ever stop to consider the possibility that I did not put you in this situation for you to change the rock by moving it, but for the rock to change you? And at that moment, a giant mirror appeared before the people, and they looked at it and saw their reflections for the first time in years 
And whereas before they had been a very average, normal group of folks in a very average, normal village, now they're muscle-bound, <laughs> leaned and toned. Their skin is tanned and rough with the weather. They've endured so much, and now they're strong. And God says, you didn't change anything with the rock, but I used the rock to change you, and now you're ready for anything that I give you. And the people finally realized what was going on. Folks, can we make people perfect in Christ Jesus? Nope. Can you change a single heart? Your, your, your children's hearts? Your people in your community group? Can you do any of that? No. But what has God called you to do? He's called you to push against the rock. He's called you to be faithful to do one thing and one thing. When the time comes, he'll get the work done. And our job isn't to move the rock, it's just to push. And I don't know how long it's going to take here at Cornerstone for God to use us to reach Hampton Rose with the gospel. I don't know how hard that's going to be. I don't know who's going to fall away in the process. Um, I don't know what the tempter, uh, the, the tempter isn't going to show up and, and make us question what we're doing along the way. I, I don't know the answers to any of those questions, but this I do know. If we're faithful, if we're willing to pay the cost, God will change us and use us whatever and whatever comes to make us perfect in Christ Jesus. I have confidence in that. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we know that serving you comes with a price. It comes at a cost. Jesus, you did not give your life so that we could just simply live ours however we wanted. You died for us, now we are to die for you. And, and we don't think for a moment that two services or church planning is the way we have to die for you, so to speak, in this context. But we do know, we know for a fact that your plan, your desire is to make everyone perfect in Christ Jesus. And so to that end, we push. We can't move that rock, but we push. And we're, we're taking steps along the way here with these little um, milestones, these, these decisions, the strategy that we're pursuing, but we recognize them for what they are. They're just means. Only you can actually take us to the end. And so keep us faithful. Help us to be willing to pay the cost of comfort or convenience or relationships or resources. Help us to be willing to give our all. These are light crosses to bear. We are so lazy and so selfish. If, if this is the worst we've been called to in this life, my goodness, we are blessed. Help us to remember that. Unite our hearts around the mission, please, Lord. Give us a resolve to pursue it to its very end, perfection for the people around us in Christ Jesus when they see you face to face. May that not leave our minds or hearts on the 11th or the 18th or for any Sunday thereafter until we see you again and all this work is complete and we rejoice in and our eternal hope in you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.